Sampling is the foundation of so much great music, but the legal and financial hurdles to clearing samples for use in new songs have been significant and daunting. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about a new service that makes clearing samples simple and affordable. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Per Almqvist of Tracklib. Per, welcome to the future of what? Thank you very much. So let's get started by talking a little bit about what Tracklib does. So why don't you just give us the elevator pitch? Tell us, tell us exactly what you do. It's super simple, actually. You know, there's so many amazing original recordings in the world that date back, you know, to the past hundred years since we started to record music. And a big part of music production, not least in hip hop, is based around sampling. You know, the practice of taking a part from an existing recording and use it in, in a new one. The problem we solve is that sampling today requires manual licensing. And it's really, really hard to clear all the rights to put out you know, a new song with a sample in it. And there are numerous legal cases to prove this, you know, with people suing each other left and right. So we decided six years ago to fix this. And it took a long time because the nature of music rights is very complex. But our idea from the start was to liberate music. You know, it's in our name, Track Lib as in Liberation, to offer real original recordings to the world's music producers to sample quickly, easily, legally and affordably. So, you know, just one example, today we've released on tracklive.com previously unreleased songs from Isaac Hayes, including multi-tracks. That's just one example. You know, we have the Philly Groove catalog with amazing R&B and soul from the 70s. We got Chinese music dating back to the early 1900s, Brazilian music, you know, well over 100,000 fully cleared original recordings. And this is just us getting started. So with us, you find master quality, you know, to be a bit nerdy about it, 16-bit, 44.1 kilohertz and up, like the real studio recordings. Some of them even have multi-tracks and stems. So you can buy these original recordings from us for $1.99. And you know, even before you buy a track, how much your sample clearance is going to be. Then most of our music so far is in our category C, which means that a worldwide and perpetuity sample license is $50. And you agree to share a percentage of the revenue you make, depending on how much you sampled. So it's really that simple. It, it's really the democratization of sampling, making original music available to all the world's music producers, not just, you know, the small group of top artists today. And the great thing is, since we launched this in April last year, we now have people using it in more than 230 countries and really across the scale of music production from amateurs and aspiring producers all the way to truly top A-list artists and producers. So just in the past couple of months, 
We've seen tracks like Middle Child by J. Cole come out with a track of sample. The latest Brockhampton album has a song called Dearly Departed with attractive sample. Young Amaze's latest album, two tracks with attractive sample. Mary J. Blige's latest single, No, a sample from Tracklib. So to us, and I think to, to more and more people, are waking up to the fact, you know, of, of what a big game changer this is. Because all of a sudden, you can legally, without looking over your shoulder, use an original recording as a part of a new song in, in, in a very simple way. Absolutely. For me, the interesting part, I mean, obviously you're putting music up that's cleared that people can use, but there's this other part, which is all of this metadata. You know, yep. I mean, metadata is like the the buzzword these days, mm-hmm. which really basically means that, you know, let's say someone goes to TrackLib and uses some bits to, you know, sample some stuff, mm-hmm. and then their song is a humongous hit. Well, how do they figure out who gets paid properly? And that's you guys, right? You guys have put that metadata together. That's why it took us, you know, five years from the idea to, to we launched TrackLib last year. You know, this idea, we started working on it, you know, five years back. And then just to get all the rights in, you know, to work with the world's publishers and labels to get all the right information in. So every song that we have, we have all the publishing data, all the master data, meaning that, you know, it's it's all there and it's all there in the sample license. So we even guide our customers, music producers, and you know labels and publishers to do correct work registrations. Guiding people through that, you know, if, if you're in the U.S., how do you register a new song with BMI or ASCAP that contains a, a sample? If you're in Germany, how do you do it with Gamma? If you're in the U.K., how do you do it with the PRS? If you're in Sweden, you know where our HQ is. How do you do it with STIP? So we've spent a lot of time working through the different ways that you register songs with different PROs and then also guiding people to correctly register neighboring rights. So it's really, you know, th- this is all a part of our sample license. You get all this data and it's also a guided process where we walk you through every step of this to do the right thing to ultimately ensure that the original songwriters and artists and producers get paid when a new song gets put out. That's sort of a ridiculous amount of work that you guys had to do to make this happen. Thank you. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, if you want to do something truly new and truly innovative, it's not going to happen in weeks or months. It's going to happen in, in, in several years, right? And there's no shortcut. You know, having a great idea is simple, but, but actually, you know, building up a company, an organization, putting the work in is, is the complex part. Absolutely. So... It's been massive, and we're just getting started. I mean, now that we're out, now that we have support by the world's labels and publishers, by the creative community as well, our job now is to get this to as many people as possible, and, you know, the the core of it, to, to keep growing our catalog with just more amazing music. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier, but I'll just say it for the record, today happens to be the day that Isaac Hayes' son, Isaac Hayes III, Mm -hmm. chose to release 20 previously unreleased tracks of his father's music directly via TrackLib mm-hmm. and and specifically so that people can sample that music. Now, I think that is really interesting because it means that you've created a platform that not only people can utilize when they're just sort of going out looking for music to sample, but that people who want to release music can utilize as well. I mean, it's opened a whole other set of doors for your product. You're 100% correct. And I mean, because we've figured out licensing, because we figured out, you know, how this works from beginning to end, that gives comfort to people and companies owning rights. 
to put them, you know, to put these recordings and these publishing rights and information into Tracklib because we make sure it's taken care of all the way to release. And it's, it's also a way for catalogs and repertoires to, to find new people to get the music too. Because as producers, you know, and I have that in my background too. I mean, I know what we're looking for is unique stuff, you know, so it's not the stuff you find on Billboard Top 10 or Top 100 or anywhere on, on the charts. You know, I want deep cuts. I want, you know, back of the crate kind of stuff. So this is a way to also popularize amazing music that isn't popular or, or in some cases, like with, with Isaac Case, hasn't been heard. And I think this part, you know, what excites us besides creating new revenues to original songwriters and, 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 and artists and producers and besides, you know, solving a big headache to produce an artist making sample-based music, it's unlocking the creative value of knowing you can comfortably use a song as kind of a new instrument and then not looking over your shoulder. But it's also the cultural aspect of it, of, you know, now in, having an incentive for labels to go back and digitize and unearth, you know, recordings that no one's heard before. And for, for those, you know, for those musical legacies to find new audiences. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the most exciting things about this is, you know, I mean, a great sample in a new song can give new life to the original song and the original artist. You know, it brings things into focus that a young audience wouldn't necessarily know. So it's, it's sort of a win-win all around in that regard. I agree. And I mean, sampling really is, you know, and this is something, you know, many people have been on it, not least Questlove, who's just been, you know, a guiding light, I think, for, for sampling and for this part of culture, has always said that sampling is musical education. Absolutely. You know? So many people have discovered legacies and genres and artists and eras that, you know, they wouldn't have stumbled upon in any other way than, than through samplings. I think hip hop as a genre has done so much for musical education that it hasn't been credited enough for. Absolutely. I mean, I think of it, <laughs> my previous incarnation was I was a social scientist. So from a sociological point of view, I always think of this as bricolage, right? Like making something new out of older parts. Ah, yeah. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think hip hop is like really, it's the modern equivalent of older types of art where people were, you know, making you know new art out of older art. But it's also sort of the forerunner of what we have seen is just the explosion of on YouTube, you know, all this user generated content where people are making new art out of stuff, you know, that people have made before. Mm. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, we're still having some issues with that. And YouTube is a good example of how, you know, when you don't do it the right way, when you don't get ahead of it, people are not getting properly credited and properly paid for for the work that others are using. It's still, it's still, it's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing to do. It's, you know, bricolage is positive. It's just, that's a difficult platform. You know, I, I love that you bring it up because I, I heard it was a lecture and I can't remember the name right now, but the, the simplest definition of innovation is taking two things that exist and put them together, mm -hmm. you know? So innovation, you know, people think of it often as something completely new. It isn't. It's all part of the process, right? And you can argue that's the creative journey. Is You know, everyone is inspired. You know, you take things that exist and you create something new. Right. So it's a, it's a very good kind of metaphor for it. And I do think behavior, you know, in terms of us as people, we're creative. We always find ways. And industries are slow to adapt to actual behavior changes. You know, we've seen it not least in the music industry in different faces, you know, different chapters of development where, you know, people have shifted, you know, when, when the technology 
make something possible, we jump on it as creators, right? And we make things. And then it takes a long time, many years, sometimes even decades for industries to catch up with, you know, how people actually behave. Right. <laughs> and then the challenge, you know, looping back to what you said early on, one of the core challenges in this industry is data. I mean, you know, most labels and publishers, maybe even more so labels, are focused on the latest releases because that's where the revenue is coming from. That's what's driving the industry. But it's also meant that, you know, practices that have been maybe required in other industries, taking care of your in inventory and managing your data, haven't been that important. And they started becoming important in, in more the digital era. But it's a big game of catch up that, you know, every rights holder in the world is doing, you know, to learn more about their own inventory. Absolutely. Because there haven't been incentives to go through all that stuff. Exactly.
That was The Crippled Jazzer by Marnie Stern. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Per Almqvist of Tracklib. I feel like my theme these days is the positive intersection of music and tech. And I feel like you guys are a great example of that. Thank you. Because, you know, it hasn't always been that way. I've, you know, I, I used to get hundreds of emails when I was running a record label from people who were like, I just came up with an app. So someone standing in the crowd at your band's show can text something to this number and get a free baseball cap. <laughs> and I'm like, that doesn't solve a problem for me. You know what I mean? Like, that's not God. helpful. Thanks a lot. No, I mean... <laughs> I think many tech ideas are like the person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, it's kind right, of that right. approach. Whereas, <laughs> you know, I agree with you. It's about solving real problems. Like this is an issue. Licensing is a huge issue. You know, it's stopping creativity. And you know it's worthwhile solving if it's really, really hard to solve, you know? Yeah, <laughs> And I think looking back to streaming and, you know, people have different opinions on streaming, but what's true is you manage to capture behavior that we as listeners in many cases already had you know mm -hmm. and giving people access you know has meant that you've shifted revenues back to the industry then there's a lot left to fix and you know nothing is perfect but i think that was a big problem to solve you know how do we get people to actually rightfully pay for music so it reaches you know the people who made it the people who manage it and and you know that was a huge shift as we know in the industry but i think also you know you got to look at the music industry and, and look compared to other industries. I mean, the, based on IFPI data, you know, looking at recordings and publishing, you know, the annual total value is roughly $30 billion, though these figures are a bit Western country skewed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's peanuts compared with, you know, sectors like industrial automation. You're looking at trillions of dollars. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're looking yeah. at financial tech. So if, if you're doing something in the music industry, if you're building a new company, it has to have the ability to scale, you know, not just domestically, but globally to be viable, you know, to be viable, to attract investment in the long run, to even build a company up. Right. So I think a, a challenge is that just a small size, relatively speaking, of the music industry. I mean, we did a comparison a few years back, recorded music like three, four years back, recorded music turned over $15 billion a year. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the same as Starbucks turns over in a year. That's one company <laughs> serving coffee. And that's there you insane. go. Starbucks, that's... Play, Starbucks play music, right? So I think that's the actual value, you know, music is one of the most under-monetized or undervalued assets in the world, considering that everyone has a smartphone with a streaming service today and a pair of headphones. We listen to music more than ever before. The actual value of the industry should be much, much higher you know, the, the, than it currently is. So there's a lot left to do in creating more efficient systems and making sure, you know, money is not lost on the way, which it is today, and we might not get into all those parts of it. But we all know there are a lot of inefficiencies and old bad practices that need to be changed in order for this industry to truly grow. Yeah. And also what you guys are doing with TrackLib is, is another important part of this ecosystem and sort of the new economy because you know once upon a time artists made their money in from two sources right record sales and touring mm. and now you're making your money from an uh, infinite number of tiny sources that you're trying to cobble together a living from and tracklib is is really delivering on that by creating basically a new income stream for existing music it's very true and it, it, it's it's well summarized 
you know, looping back, the incentive has been, you know, for the industry ever since the start to focus on the hits and not the catalog, like we discussed before. So I think, you know, on a streaming service, you might find a legacy artist, but you only find the top hits. I see my kids using streaming services and they're finding, you know, a Stevie Wonder or they're finding, you know, a classic artist, but they're not finding the deeper songs. You know, they're not exploring the albums at all. They're just seeing some of the top hits. Right. So I think now looking at what can we do with the world's music catalogs? You know, what can we do with all this amazing music waiting there to be used? That, you know, there are hundreds of millions of creators out there that want to use this music. It's just too hard, right? So it's it's time for liberation. I love it. And with that, Per Almqvist of Tracklib, thank you so much for being with me on The Future of What? Thank you, Portia. That was Cool Yourself by Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Isaac Hayes III. Isaac, welcome to The Future of What. Hello, how are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to talk to you. Glad to be here. 
So the reason that we're talking to you is that you've done something very interesting and groundbreaking, which is you released some of your dad's previously unreleased music, your dad, Isaac Hayes. Yeah. The great Isaac Hayes. <laughs> some of his previously unreleased music. Yeah. Directly on a service called TrackLab. Yes, indeed. It, it, it's pretty great. Do you want to tell us why you chose to do that? Well, when I first started managing my father's estate in like 2013, the first thing that I did was I was curious about his music. So I had all of his masters that he had kept in storage for like, you know, 30, 40 years sent to me down in Atlanta, Georgia. I put them in a safe place in the ATL, a vault, and then pulled them out. When I opened the boxes, I discovered there was a lot of like unreleased material on two inch reels, you know, one inch reels, all this crazy stuff that no one had ever heard before. So I spent two years from 2014 to 2016 transferring all of that material from reels to digital. So the Pro Tools sessions and files that I could have forever and ever. In that time, they announced the new Shaft movie that was coming out. And so I didn't know when they were going to do it because at the time they had just announced that they didn't have a script director, cast or anything like that. They just had a producer. So I reached out to the producer, told him I had all this unreleased material and I was just going to hold on to it till they decided to make the movie because if they decided to use something in the film, they would have the best of Isaac Hayes or something very authentic to use with part of the movie. So fast forward to 2018 I and mean 19, it didn't end up working out that way with New Line. They didn't use any Isaac Hayes music in the new Shaft movie. Mm. And yeah, it was, it, was, it was weird. I don't know. I don't know why they decided to go that way. But after the movie came out, it really didn't do very well. But it's a great movie. I still want everybody to see it because I think Samuel L. Jackson, Jesse T. Usher, it's a, it's a great film. But I still had this material. And during that time, I had kept my eyes on TrackLib. Tom Silverman had reached out probably a year or two before we did this deal and was telling me about TrackLib. But at that time, they were still working on Shaft, so I didn't want to give anything away until I knew what was going to happen with that movie. So it really was five years that from the time that I did this in 14 till 2019. So after Shaft didn't happen, I knew whatever I had left anyway, I was probably going to do with TrackLib. So the opportunity came to do it, and I wanted to, you know, send them not an enormous amount of material, but just start off with something really good, substantial that people could use and sample and create music with. So it turned out pretty good. Yeah. So TrackLib is a service whereby people can go and they can sample music and they can get the music cleared legally in a very hassle-free manner. And so I think what you're doing with your dad's music is so interesting because really what's happening in our culture is a lot of, you know, what used to be called bricolage, right? Like taking something old and making something new out of it, mm -hmm. taking older art and making new art. Yeah. And, you know, this is an amazing way also to get your father's legacy to move forward into the future in like a whole new form. Yeah, I mean, derivative works are really what are the hallmark of publishing really like that's really what publishing and masters really make a lot of income you know catalog records are always going to be catalog records so the great hits that original artists have always created will always be there but it's really cool when a new artist takes something from an older artist and creates this derivative work and it comes out to be a masterpiece so over at our company the last five years we've had really good success with just that with Artists like Alessia Cara and Kanye West and Beyonce, Kodak Black and NBA Youngboy, The Game, 
Jill Scott. There have been a lot of artists that have sampled Isaac Hayes over the last like five years. So we do well on the records that have already been released, but now there's this whole new catalog to do the same thing with. So I was really, you know, happy to be able to see what comes from these great records. Absolutely. Now, it's been out a couple of weeks, two or three weeks since it was actually released. Mm -hmm. What kind of feedback have you been getting? Oh, amazing feedback. Man, some of my friends who are Grammy Award winning, number one hit songwriting, producing songwriters and producers have already you know, made records with some of these masters already. So I can't wait to see where these records wind up or what they are doing. I ran into Just Blaze down in A3C in Atlanta. He said, yo, I need this one song on there. Like, I, I got something special for it. So I'm excited. And then before that, before Tracklib, I worked with a couple of other producers, this producer by the name of Needles, who produced Nicole Buss on Rock Nation. Mm. He produced the majority of her album, and there's an unreleased Isaac Case sample on the new Nicole Bus album that came out last Friday. Hmm. The song is called Look Up to the Sky. The entire track that she's singing over, every instrument, every you know piece of that music is an unreleased Isaac Hayes master that Needles just chopped up and produced and made a really great record out of. Wow. That sounds so cool. Yeah. You know, I think this is really a cool thing that Tracklib has made possible for people because in the early days of hip hop, when people were sampling, you know, I think we really got some of the most amazing tracks ever. Mm -hmm. But then I think people got scared. Like there was, because, you know, people didn't want to get sued. They didn't want to do it wrong. And the, the law surrounding sampling was so confusing and difficult. Yeah. I think that that sort of put a damper on it. So I love it that it's back now in a way that people can actually do it in an affordable manner and they know that they're going to be okay legally. Yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, the 80s and 90s really took samples and and brought them to the next level, especially hip hop. I mean, I think sampling records is kind of the foundation of what hip hop and rap music was about. Before we started, you know, making original rap music, we were rapping over disco records. Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, and so people still wanted to use that type of material. So it kind of set the tone of what hip hop could be. And then it just exploded in the 90s. I mean, people like Dr. Dre and Diddy just took it to another level, like made it super mainstream. And there was a little bit of backlash from that, but also... They were just taking so much of the publishing of these records. So, you know, Diddy and, and they would still contribute artistically to creating new records. But imagine doing a song and the original songwriter wants 100 percent of the publishing. So you're going to get no money. You're going to sell records. Cool. You know, but you're going to get none of the publishing of this new record or we're going to charge you a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars to license this master. Mm. So it was like, you know, the 90s were crazy. Right. And then digital music came into play and then record sales kind of plummeted and people still wanted to sample. So they got better, you know, but they were still a little hefty. It's still for, for a newer artist that's trying to get out and, and make an album. And when they have a budget that they might have $10,000 to clear or $20,000, it's costing 10 or $20,000 to clear one song and you haven't paid the producer. Right. And I mean, right. you know, you're talking maybe 30, 35 grand and maybe your, maybe your budget is $175,000. So you can't really do that. Right. So platforms like Tracklib, I think the fees, you know, max out at about $2,500, which the labels are definitely not afraid of. And then right. independent <laughs> artists, you know, some of them are 500 or $50. So now it's like, oh, great, I can sample this record and put it out. 
and make some money off of it. And they're not going to kick my butt, you know, on the front end. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's it's democratized sampling from where it was, because exactly as you said, I mean, if you're Diddy, then, you know, it's a different value proposition. Like you're, it's worth putting $250,000 into clearing samples. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can make some money. Well, Isaac Hayes III, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What? Well, thank you. was Advice on Bioluminescent Bears by Boats. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Deborah Manis Gardner. Deborah, welcome to the future of what? Thank you. So today we are talking about samples. And I think it's great to be talking about samples in 2019 rather than, let's say, oh, 1992. <laughs> I think because we're sitting in a, a better place today. 
you've been doing this a long time. And can you just sort of talk a little bit about the evolution of sampling and clearing samples specifically? Well, I've been doing it since 1990, and it is continuously changing and morphing really based on technology, generations of how things are done, how we're able to do deals. You know, back in the early 90s, the kids would sample, we'd send out the request and we were, you know, being yelled at saying, they stole this. Why didn't you clear it prior to using it? If we were to contact someone now and say, we're thinking of sampling X, is it clearable? They'll say, you need to do it first before we can consider it. Oh, interesting. It's totally turned around. Totally turned around. You know, it used to be called theft and that this the genre of music was only not going to last. Oh, yes. Of course. Yes. And, you know, the word theft is not really used as often. I think we hear it when we see these articles dealing with litigation of claims. But if you notice, most of the claims are interpolations or publishing uses only. Mm -hmm. They aren't master uses for the most part. And I don't think that a lot of these suits are realistic because the way music is created is your influence. You are affected by other stuff. You know, the term interpolation really, which was created years later, like in the, in the mid to late nineties was to replay or to re-record or to re-sing. Mm-hmm. Right. Claims that are coming about now is influenced by. Right. Similar to. Well, that is not the same. No. It evokes emotions. Well, isn't music the whole basis of music to evoke emotions? Exactly. I mean, that's a big topic unto itself is this whole idea of, you know, there has been legislation written about what constitutes infringement, right? Like, you know, it has to have the same words or the same melody or the same, you know, all these things. But this idea of like a vibe or a feeling is like a whole new world. Right. And that's not what we're talking about when we talk about clearing samples. No, it's not. But, you know, my love for sample clearances is there. It always has been. It always will be. You know, for me personally, it really opened up the doors. And that's where I started entering and doing clearances for video games, film, television, and new technology. But I love the art of sampling. Uh I enjoy negotiations and clearing stuff. And what's cool about TrackLib is they're trying to make it easier for people. Yeah, which is amazing. And I know that a lot of people have used what they do in some big songs. And, you know, it's paying off. It's it's worthwhile. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the early days of hip hop and early sampling. I mean, I was in an exercise class the other day and Run DMC's song came on that uses that My Sharona sample. Tricky. That's the song. And I was like, this song was so great and so amazing. And the sample really makes it. That's the part of artistry that I think has really taken off in the internet age. Because look at YouTube. YouTube is exactly the same thing. It's like bricolage, right? Like people are taking stuff that came before and using it in a new way. I mean, it's the exact same thing. And you know what samples did is it revived careers of certain artists. And we kind of forget about that. You know, James Brown's career was not going well. If we all recall what was happening back in the day getting in trouble with the law, doing drugs. Right. You know, the music situation had changed. We were with vinyl. Never, one ever thought about reissuing. Then you had CDs. Then the reissuing started. It was sampling that brought James Brown back into the forefront of people's minds. And Phil Johnson thanked me, I don't know how many times, when Wu-Tang Clan revived his career being sampled. Mm -hmm. Hamilton Bohannon, another one. So... 
what sampling did, and, and that's what's kind of cool about chocolate, what sampling did is it revived material that had become defunct or hadn't been listened to or wasn't getting to the masses and people sampling stuff now and obscure stuff. Let's forget about the James Brown, the Isley brothers, the OJs. Let's talk about the obscure stuff that gets sampled and revitalizes these copyrights back into the forefront of people knowing who it is. Exactly. You get turned on to new music because of sampling. And that's kind of cool. Like when Chocolate came to me, I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. Go for that low hanging fruit. Go to the copyright holders and say, hey, the stuff that isn't earning any revenue still has value. Mm-hmm. How can you bring that value back? Well, you want it to be used in a film. You want to brand it. You get it sampled. If something gets sampled by one person, it gets their attention. Then everyone else wants to use it or it wants to be used in a film or wants to be used in another way. Absolutely. And that's why we're seeing such a boom in reissue labels. You know, there's labels popping up all over the place that are really making a killing in the reissue sphere because they're doing exactly that. They're getting syncs for music that's been, you know, out of public circulation for 30 years. And all of a sudden, everybody's hot for it. So talk for a second about, you know, revitalizing careers is definitely a big part of this. But there's, I feel like there's also, and I could be totally wrong, but I just get the sense that there's almost like a competition amongst artists to find the coolest, most obscure piece of music and use a sample from that. Do you find that that's the case? You know, it's an interesting topic, you know, about samples, you know, do they actually look for the most obscure stuff? I don't know if that's the case. It's kind of like people say, Deborah, can you pitch this song to a producer to sample from it? And I always say, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. <laughs> right. But I also like to challenge people saying, you know what? If you have the opportunity to sample something like on Tracklib, if you're a good producer, you should be able to create a beat out of almost anything. Right. They might work for the one song that you're working on at that very moment. But if you're a good producer, you should be able to take some of those things and create something. Right. I think things are getting more obscure and more difficult because of YouTube. I think people pick through the crates, you know, back in the day, remember we used to go to record stores, which is so awesome that they're back again. And vinyl is going to outsell CDs. I think they said, Mm -hmm. then you're like picking through the crates of YouTube and Spotify and SoundCloud and all these online services. So that's when I say to people, if you don't have the money, if you don't have the budget, go online and see if you can pick through the crates of track club or anybody, you know? Make it economical for yourself. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what you do. You run your own company, which is DMG Clearances, and you have artists. I mean, I'm assuming at this point you have real longstanding relationships with a lot of different artists. So do they come to you immediately when they have something they want to sample and to get clearances, or how does it work? Well, yeah. I mean, the people who come to me, sometimes it's the artist direct, like Khaled calls me directly. Mm-hmm. Drake or Marshall's camp, it's coming through management to hire me to do it. So it's like management, attorneys, record labels come to me, publishers come to me, producers, every it's across the board. The bottom line is if you've got a sample, it has to be cleared. I don't care who does it. Just make sure it gets done so that your product can get out there without any legal issues. Got it. So now your job is actually, if your job is to clear the sample, that means that you need to have an extensive database or knowledge of who owns what. Yes. So how do you do that? I mean, the watchword of the day in the music industry today is metadata. So you must be like also the queen of metadata at this point. And it's interesting because I keep saying about metadata, it's lacking in that I wish it also included sample information on the master side. It obviously is going to include the the publishing side because it's going to include the writer's and sampled publisher, but it doesn't include the sampled master and sampled label. And I kind of wish it did. 
So my staff and I, we have access to publishers' databases to look things up. And then my staff kind of laughs at me. And, and, and this went down like when I was at ADE last week, where I was having a conversation with someone. And we're talking about Burt Backrock and, and how David, I'm like, oh, well, you know, how David used to be Casa David. And then it went to Windswept and then Fuji Pacific and then BMG had 100%. But now the Royalty Network has 50% and, and BMG has 50%. And they kind of looked at me and they're like, well, how do you, do you just like, around with that? And it's like, it's stuck in there. I kind of wish they could stick a USB drive in my brain uh-huh. to download stuff. And, and now it's all about acquisition. So these publishers are losing things and gaining things so quickly that the PROs can't even keep up. Oh my God. Yeah. And so, you know, it's going to be the name of my book. I, wear, I know where the bones are buried. Either that or my name is on a, on a bathroom stall. It's just... <laughs> you learn this stuff and it just gets kind of gets stuck with you. And that's how my brain works. Uh-huh. You know, I five to 700 emails a day. I read them all. At least as once I glance at it and read it, that information stays in the brain. <gasps> now I can't tell you what my son's cell phone number is. <laughs> I was on the phone with LL Cool J and I reminded him that when he did 14 shots of the dome and Marley Mar was one of the producers, the split was 70, 30, 70, LL, 30 Marley. And then the sample came out of Marley's 30%. And LL's like, you remember that? And I'm like, dude, I can't. <laughs> album in under seven days when you won a grammy you thanked god and it was kind of sad that i didn't get recognition <laughs> and he was like laughing he's like i'm really sorry you did a great job oh my but, god that's so a great it just, this, this stuff just gets stuck in my mind and and that's how i know where to find people or, or remember things or just all that kind of stuff well, that's so interesting because that it is we're we're entering this era of consolidation and constant sales. And, you know, now that the investment people have discovered the master side and for years, investors were interested in investing in the publishing side of the music industry. But suddenly, you know, these venture capitalists have come swarming around the master side. Yeah. We're seeing all sorts of consolidations and, and purchases. And, you know, this catalog goes to this other company. How do you keep that all straight? Yeah, I, the only reason I think I know a lot of the acquisitions is people come to me saying, hey, I'm selling a catalog. Can you hook me up? Or, hey, I'm buying a catalog. Do you know information on this catalog? So I think I just know who's has what. You know, you have to read a lot of trade publications. You know, people kind of laugh like, oh, I don't use Facebook. I don't use social media. I'm like, you have to use social media because social media is how you're always going to know what's going on with who and when. Right. And, you know, so you've got that young generation. My son's 19. He's like, oh, I don't use Facebook. I use Snapchat and Instagram. I'm like, well, I use Facebook as well because that's going to help me keep in touch with people, find out where things are going and what's going on, who's buying what. Wow. It's a lot of reading. You know, it's it's a lot of paying attention to things, going to music conferences, listening to what people say, reading emails and just being on top of it. I love it that you're doing it all from Delaware. I think that's so punk. I love that. Well, you know, I was born and raised here. I left Delaware at the age of 17, swearing never to step foot again. (laughs) But then (laughs) 9-11 happened and I had a little baby boy. And I'm like, I don't think New York City is where I want to be to raise my son. So my son and his father and I moved back to Delaware. And he ended up going to this really phenomenal school here called Sanford. And I ended up staying in Delaware because of the school he went to. It was like the best school for him possible. Wow. You know, I get emails on a regular basis, like, when are you coming back to New York City? (laughs) Now, you know, I got two big dogs. And I said, when my dogs die, I'll move back to New York. (laughs) Two more years. But the way I set up my company is everyone gets to work from their homes. And to be honest, we're mostly women here. I'd say 99% of my staff are women. 
And the way I've structured it is we have everything in the clouds. So when I'm in Amsterdam, when I'm in South Africa, if I'm in France, I have access to my files. I can work 24-7, but I can also take care of my family. My staff can take care of their family or their pets or go on vacation. Thank God for technology. We have the ability. And I think because I treat my staff like that, like we don't have X number of sick days. How the hell are you supposed to know how many days you're going to be sick a year? Right. (laughs) There's no number of sick days. We find any holiday we can take off, we take off. We have no really set number of vacation days because everyone checks their emails when they're on vacation. Everyone looks out for each other. And it works. That's fantastic. Well, Deborah, I feel like I'm taking time in this interview away from time you should be reading something and learning about you know, today's acquisitions. Oh my God. I'm like, I'm in the middle of a, a video game with a couple hundred songs for Google ads. And currently our office has approximately maybe 40 or 50 albums simultaneously on clearances, whether it's at the beginning stages or the wrap up stages, and then a couple of motion pictures and TV shows. So we're, we're pretty busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just another day's work. Just, yeah, just a regular day's work. But you know, we're having fun. And if you're not having fun, well, then find another job. It's all got to be about having fun and enjoying life. Absolutely. And on that note, Deborah Manis-Gardner, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for being with me on The Future of What? Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Barney Stern, Tao with a Get Down, Stay Down, Boats, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. See you next week.